Let me tell you where we've been. Let me tell you what we're doing. We are looking at the book of Philippians. And uh, we, started, uh, we started with a broad scope, remember? We said that we're not only going to track through the book of Philippians, but we're going to track through the book of Philippians while at the same time helping each other to figure out a way that we uh, individually can examine our own scriptures. And so as we're going through the book of Philippians, we're sort of attacking this on Sunday morning from the same perspective, generally, that we would have you attack any given book of the Bible that you're going to read. All right. So if you were to pick up Colossians at home, you could take the same angle, the same approach, this starting with the with the wide perspective and then narrowing your focus. And you remember the first homework assignment I gave you after we looked at some of the preliminaries of Philippians, the who, what, when, where and why's. The first homework assignment I gave you was not to nitpick the passage, not to nitpick the letter, but to read it as it is a letter, a love letter to a church, to a real church, to a real people and read it in one sitting, read it in its entirety as what it is, a letter. And so we started with this broad perspective. And incidentally, if you we talked about how uh, maybe you approach this in your Bible and finding a good study Bible, etc. All good study Bibles will do this very thing. Before they get into the text, they'll give you an introduction. In the beginning of the introduction, they'll give you the who, what, when, where, and the why. They'll give you the broadest spectrum picture they can, all the nuts and bolts, all the important facts, all the preliminaries about the book, so that when you jump into the book, you have a little background. And we spent two weeks, we went to Acts, and we talked about, we talked about these preliminary issues. Who were these people that Paul was writing to? Why was he writing this letter? What was Paul's experience in Philippi? We looked at some of those broad spectrum, those big picture things. And now we're in phase two of sort of how to examine Philippians. We're in the middle of phase two. Here's, here's phase two. It's building a, maybe a skeleton, if you will, within the text so that we can narrow our focus just a little bit, but track through the text and find common themes that carry us through the text without us getting bogged down in individual arguments, individual passages in the text. Chapter one, we gave you an outline. Remember the outline was we said for chapter one, here's our here's our scaffolding or here's our skeleton that we're going to track through this book with. We said that there are many themes, but we held to that the primary theme would have to be Christ and Paul's uh, Paul's focus on Christ. Chapter one, we we built a scaffolding that said Christ is Paul's life. We said that everything that Paul does is for Christ. We said that this guy, uh, humanly speaking, had gone crazy and Everything he does, everything that happens to him, he evaluates in light of Christ and the proclamation and exaltation of the glory of Christ. Paul gave his entire life to Christ, even to the point of his death. Chapter two, we said that Christ is Paul's example. And last week we spent our time looking primarily at the example that he gave in chapter two, the example being the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus, who was, in fact, God, not just the son of God. He was Paul went to great. Uh, through great pains to let us understand that he actually is God and that God stepped down out of heaven and humbled himself. And so we saw that example and we, we finalized, uh, we came to the end and we said that the example was an example of what? Humility. And that carries through the theme that there's this underlying theme in the book of Philippians of unity. That if the Philippian church had any issue, it was the issue of unity. He alludes to it in chapter 1. The focus of chapter two, the, the, the teachings, the example of chapter two, point two, how do we how do we gain unity? We gain unity through having a mind like Christ, having this attitude in us that Christ had. What was the attitude he had? He had an attitude of humility, letting go of anything that would elevate him willingly and lowering himself, humbling himself for the sake of others. 
in the context, in the theme of unity that's carried through this book, that's why chapter 2 was there. That's why the example was there. We learn from Christ's example. We learn humility so that we, we let go of anything that might elevate us above others. And we build unity among the church in that way. Chapter 3, we're going to say, the skeleton for us today is that Christ is Paul's hope. Christ is Paul's hope. We could, uh, we could say this several different ways. Let me read you verse 1 and tell you why. In verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, and that word finally, it doesn't mean that this is the end of his letter. In fact, we're just halfway through here. We're starting the second half. It could be translated now then or furthermore. It doesn't mean that he's wrapping up, but he's carrying on his argument. He's carrying on his point. So, furthermore, my brethren, here's what I want you to do. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I could have titled, we could have given chapter 3, the skeleton, not that Christ is Paul's hope, but Christ is Paul's joy. The theme of rejoicing and Christ as Paul's joy is throughout the book of Philippians. It's one of the things that it's most famously known for. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, right? We know it well. That word rejoice, however, isn't the idea of a, well, of an excitement or uh, an emotional feeling as much as it is a state or a confidence. And so instead of choosing to give us the scaffolding of chapter 3, Christ is our hope, or chapter 3, Christ is our joy, I chose to say that Christ is our hope because that's the implication here. To rejoice in the Lord, Paul is emphasizing here the Lord. Find your joy, find your delight, Find your confidence or find your hope in the Lord. And the rest of the chapter is going to unfold from there because that is his goal, that we find our confidence, we find our delight, we find our joy. In other words, we find our hope. All of our eggs are in the basket that is Christ. Okay? He's going to say here in verse 1, to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you, a couple things on that passage. Number one, uh, it could reflect some of his comments earlier in the letter. Some scholars think that him saying that I'm going to repeat this to you is a safeguard for you. It's no trouble for me. He could be he could be rewording something he already said in the letter. There are some who think that. I, I don't think that's the case. It could be, and many believe that there are other letters to the Philippians. You say, well, is this then Second Philippians? Was there a, a First Philippians? Perhaps, perhaps. So then. If we find first Philippians, should it be in the Bible? Now, don't go that far. We have in our scripture what God intended us to have. You just got to understand that that Paul probably wrote other things and that we don't have everything that Paul wrote down. What we have is what God intended us to have. He may have perhaps written the church of Philippi other letters. What is most likely the case that while Paul was with this church at Philippi, he said many of these things to them on other occasions. And so it's not the first time he's going to say this. And the argument here is, it's probably not the last that you need to hear it. What he's going to build upon here, this thing that he's going to say we need to put our hope in, that all of our eggs need to be in this basket, our delight needs to be in this, our joy needs to be in this, our confidence needs to be in this. Whatever that thing is, and I've already told you it's Christ. Whatever that is, uh, it's something that we need to be constantly reminded of. What Paul's going to say here, I expect, is nothing new to you today. Count the second half of verse 1 for yourself this morning because 
It is needed over and over again. Humanly speaking, we fall into the temptations that lead us off one side of the road or the other. There are going to be two ditches here in chapter 3 that we can go into over and over and over. And Paul say, it's a safeguard for you. It's a guardrail for you for me to teach you this again. And it's no trouble for me. I want to approach this uh, chapter a little bit differently. You know what we're doing here. We're going chapter by chapter. And so it's a task in and of itself to give you a whole chapter in 30 minutes. But I'm going to try my best. Many of you who've been around a while, you know that it's an extreme difficult thing for me to do to skip over individual words and individual nuggets of truth in this passage. But I'm going to try and do it. Okay. And to do that, we're going to have to we're going to have to take a broad brushstroke look at this chapter. And the difficult thing I found, especially here in chapter three, more difficult than in chapter one and in chapter two, is to be able to give you just just the skeleton of chapter three so that later on, once we're done with chapter four, we can come back and put some meat on the bones. But to just give you the skeleton here is going to be a difficult thing to do. So I want to give you a little bit different approach. We're not going to go just like last week. We didn't. We're not going to go one through the end of the chapter. I'm going to skip around just a little bit. Remember last week, we looked at the example primarily, and then we said, what is this an example of? It's an example of humility, and then we saw how the rest of the chapter fit to that example. Today, let me give you those guardrails that he mentions in chapter 1. Let me give you those safeguards. The first one is in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Now, that's not a reference to a dog that you would have as a pet in your home, because Jews might have dogs as pets in their homes. They had a couple different words for dogs. This word for dogs is the dog that you find out on the trash heap, eating junk. He was the lowest of the low. And Jews commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs with this particular Greek word. Paul, a Jew himself, flips that around and he's going to turn to the Jews who are in the midst of the Philippian church, who are on the periphery of the Philippian church, and he's going to call them dogs. Very interesting that he does that. This is the most harsh that Paul gets in probably all of his letters. Beware of the dogs. Now he's going to call them something else. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Jews were known as the circumcised. It is the chief mark of their identity being God's people. It was an outward mark of their uh, unification with God. They were God's people and often they were called of the circumcision. Very interesting here that Paul says, you're not of the true circumcision. These dogs, these evil workers, these men are of the false circumcision. Here's why. Verse three. We are, on the other hand, the church. Those in Philippi. We are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory. Circle these next two words in Christ. Their confidence, their joy, their delight, their hope is where? Of the true circumcision, their hope is in Christ. It is in nothing else. But there are, Paul would call them dogs. There are evil workers among you. There are those of the false circumcision. They would say they are of God by their outward markings, but they are, in fact, not. The word literally there for false circumcision is mutilators. They are of the mutilization. Very graphic terminology here. Deuteronomy tells the nation of Israel that no man can serve as a priest or be in the worship of God if he has been emasculated. All right? Sorry to be pretty graphic here, but this is where Paul is going with this. 
He says, you're not actually of the true circumcision. You are of the mutilators. And in fact, he, in his terminology here, cuts them off from being involved in the worship of God. He really separates this group here. If you didn't already get that by him calling them dogs. He separates this group. And he separates them from those in verse 3 who are the true church, the true circumcision. And in words reminiscent of John chapter 4, he said the true church worship is, worships in the spirit of God. Remember John 4, God meet, or Jesus, who is God, that would have worked, meets the woman at the well. And she says, you, you seem to be a wise teacher. Where, where should we worship? On this mountain? On this mountain? Where's the right place? And he says, listen, a time is coming and it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Surely Paul plays on these words in verse 3 that the true worshipers worship not, the emphasis here is, worship not with just religious activity. Worship not with just outright symbolism, which circumcision was. The true circumcision, and he follows this argument in many other passages I could take you to, and we'll come back to some of these arguments. The true circumcision are those who have been circumcised in their heart. They've cut away the flesh and they've made room for God in their hearts. An outward symbol is not enough. Doing the outward religious things is not enough. That's Paul's point. But there are some dogs, evil workers, mutilators who would have you just do that for the outward symbol in and of itself and then say that they are truly gods. And he says, no, true worshipers, those who truly identify with God, worship him in spirit. It goes deeper than just an outward symbolism. It goes to the spirit and their glory is in Christ. Their glory is in nothing outward. Their glory is in nothing physical, nothing material, nothing that they do. Their glory is in Christ alone. Keep going. He's going to sum up the whole chapter in the next phrase. And glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. The dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators, their confidence was in themselves. Their confidence was in their physical activity in their religious outworkings their confidence was in their literally their flesh paul says we put no confidence those of us who are of the true circumcision those of us who actually inwardly worship in spirit and in truth and truth meaning not just in right ways but in but in purity and honesty we put no confidence in the flesh now that's that's one of the guardrails that he's going to set up against these people who are leading the church of Philippi in the wrong direction. They're leading them into a ditch. The ditch being that you need to do these sort of ritual activities to be a part of God's kingdom. Let me skip down here. In verse 18, he's going to give you the other side of the road. He's going to give you another guardrail. Verse 18, we've got another group who earlier he's called opponents in this book. We've got another group who are uh, leading some of the church astray. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping. Paul's heart breaks because of this error. That they are enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross. What that means is they don't, hold to the cross and the cross alone. They don't cling to Christ and Christ alone. They have made themselves enemies of the cross because it's been 
Christ plus something else. And they have nullified the work of the cross. That's what it means by becoming enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19. Look at the description he gives of these people leading the church of Philippi into despair. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite, literally their belly. Their cravings, you could say. Whatever they want, they take it. And whose glory is in their shame. And they set their minds, here's the key thing, on earthly things. So we've got two guardrails here that Paul wants to set up in this chapter. We've got two errors that the church could fall into. Two ditches, if you will. One is an error of legalism. There were Jews who surrounded the church in Paul's day who looked to the church and said, you guys are not following the rules. God has set up very specific rules, and we've even made up some more to further emphasize those initial rules. And you're not following those rules. If you were to be God's people, you need to follow the rules. And as you follow these outward rules, as you are circumcised, as you obey the Sabbath, if you do these things, they are indications that you are of God's true people. They're legalists. And Paul sets up a guardrail. He says, we can't fall into that ditch. At the end of the chapter, he says, there's another ditch we can fall into, and we've got to set up a guardrail against it. Here's what it is. They're not legalists. They're what we call uh, libertines. They're liberals. They're liberals in this sense. They would say that because our spirits are secure, God has taken care of our inward person, then whatever we do with our flesh, and let me just tell you, this is a vast oversimplification of this group of people, all right? But for the sake of helping you to build a framework, helping you to get the skeleton that is chapter 3, let me just oversimplify it here for you. They would say that because God has taken care of my spirit, I can do anything I want with my flesh. They would take this to such a degree that they would say that Jesus himself was not actually uh, man. He was not actually physically human. And you remember in chapter 2, Paul went to, to great degrees to say he was actually fully God and he was actually fully man. He was of the same stuff of humans. I'm sure he had this this group in mind in chapter two. See, these people would say that Jesus couldn't have been actually here in the flesh. It was just the spirit of Christ kind of as a facade on this human Jesus. And he wasn't really there and because God can't be corrupted by humanity and the flesh thereof. And they're really separate. And so they carried that to the, to the degree that they said, as long as my spirit's secure, I can do anything I want with my flesh. And they did. Their, their appetite led their life. Their belly led their life. They did whatever they wanted. There was no control. There was no conscience. There was no morality that guided them towards their sanctification, their glorification in Christ. So you see the two ditches here? We can be legalists or we can be liberals. We can say we've got to follow all the rules or throw all the rules out the window. We're saved. We've got a ticket to heaven. We can do whatever we want. And because our flesh is going to perish anyway, uh, we can do with it whatever we would like. And they did. And they lived however they would like. They lived just like they did before Christ. You see the two ditches? All right, now in the middle, Paul's going to build an argument. It's an an extremely complex argument. Again, we're going to oversimplify it for our purposes today. He's going to go from addressing the legalist to addressing the liberals, and he's going to find this balance in his heart. 
based on his love for God and based on what God has already done for him, he's going he's to attempt to give us this balance between the two and combat for the church of Philippi both of these errors. Verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and the glory and glory in Christ. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now you're going to get Paul's resume in verses four through six. He stops here and he says, although I myself, you know, I might have confidence even in the flesh if I thought about it. To these people who say we need to go through these checklists, we need to follow all these rules. He says, you know what, I I could play that game if I wanted to. And so he gives them his resume. Look at what he says here. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. He's going to elevate himself. Paul's going to show you how he makes the top of the legalist list. Watch this. Verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day, just as he was supposed to. He was of the nation of Israel, meaning he was not a convert to the nation of Israel. He is born into God's chosen race. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin had uh, numerous reasons for being uh, for having a special place in God's heart. When all other tribes defected from Judah uh, after Rehoboam and that whole story, uh, Benjamin stayed faithful. There was great pride in being of the tribe of Benjamin. And Paul says, I'm from I'm from Ben. Not just that, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were Hebrews. He's a Hebrew. He has a long lineage of being among God's people. As to the law of Pharisee, now he's going to transition here. He's told you all the things about him that he really had no control over. Now he's going to tell you about the things that he has control over. And he's going to tell us how he's worked his way to the top, humanly speaking, of this legalistic list. He was born this. You can't get any better. And now he's going to say, look at how I've elevated myself since. As to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were a group of individuals who in the intertestamental period, that's the, that's the period between your Old and your New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew, about 400 years, while the nation of Israel was under foreign rule, there was a group that came together and said, we've got to hold God's orthodoxy together. We've got to hold God's laws together. And what started out to be an honorable uh, endeavor became a legalistic activity. The Pharisees were this group. They started this, this orthodox group to hold God's law in such a way that it wouldn't be dismissed. He says, I'm of that line. And he's not just a Pharisee. He's top of the Pharisees. As to zeal, verse 6, well, you want to know how serious of a Pharisee I am? I'm a persecutor of the church. What that means is, is that there were some Pharisees who just guarded the law. And made sure everybody was following the rules. There were other Pharisees that went a a step above. Their zeal took them even a step further. He says, I'm on the varsity right here. So much so that I'm not just holding to the rules. I'm going out there and finding guys who aren't. And I'm persecuting them for not doing it. It, It's really a two-sided coin here. Their love for God's law and their hate for those who don't love God's law. And Paul says, I've got both of those taken care of. I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. My whole history, my whole heritage is top notch. Not only that, I'm going out and I'm finding people who don't feel the same way I do and I'm persecuting them till they do. How about that? And he puts himself right at the top and he challenges these people in this context. He says, if you can find anybody who's done better, let me know. And his point being that you cannot 
You can't do any better than Paul has done. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, meaning if you were to go through my checklist of being able to keep the law, he says what? I've been found blameless. He doesn't say that he was blameless, incidentally. He says, I was found blameless. By all appearance, I'd kept every jot and every tittle. I lacked nothing. Well, verse 7, he's now going to tell you what he thinks about that. We've got Paul's past. We're about to see Paul's heart for his salvation. But whatever things were gained to me, and he's going to use accounting terms here. He's going to tell us about gains and losses. Profits and losses right here. And he put in human terms, he put that full list that he just gave you. He put it in the profit column. Just like these in verse 2 and 3, they put their list in the profit column. Paul's going to say, you know what I found out? That it doesn't belong in the profit column. It in fact belongs in the debit column. It is a loss. Verse 7, but whatever things were, past tense, gained to me, those things I have now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those things that elevated him professionally, as Paul looks back now that he is in Christ, he looks back upon them, he says, you know what, They've been, they were worthless. They added up to nothing. In light of what Jesus has done, in light of now what I understand about the love of Christ for me, that I could, not, I could not shape or I could not change. It was, it was, it was, an, it or originated in him. My list did not achieve God's love for me. It did not change God's love for me. It didn't impress God to the degree that he did love me. Paul understands that now, essentially, everything that he had done and put in his profit column, it detracted from what Jesus had actually done for him. Professionally speaking, verse 8, privately speaking as well. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ. Emphasis here, not on the things that he's done, but now the one that he knows. He's gone from a man who does a lot of stuff to a man who's in a relationship with a person. person by the name of Jesus. Did Paul lose everything? He sure did. Very literally, Paul lost everything. His list earlier, his legalism, his being a Hebrew of Hebrews, his being a Pharisee uh, of top-notch zeal, it made him rich, literally. He had power, position, he had authority, he had it all. He had respect among his peers. But he says, you know what, I count even that all to be lost in view of knowing Jesus, my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Again, Paul uses in this chapter language more harsh than most any other of his letters. If Paul could use a uh, profanity right here, this would be the place he's using it. That word for rubbish could literally be translated dung. He said it's the worst. It is essentially excrement compared to what? My relationship with Christ. Well, verse 9. And I may be found in him. Would you notice a little bit of change in Paul's emphasis here? It's not on the things he's done, but it's in verse 8, knowing Christ, who is my Lord. 
Verse 8, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, that I may be found in him. At the end of Paul's life, when he stood before God, his hope was not that he would be found at the top of the list in rule keeping. His hope, he came to understand, needed to be that he be found in a person. That was his only hope. That was his delight. That was his joy. And that was his only confidence. Am I going to put any confidence in the flesh, Paul says? I sure am not. My confidence is in him, knowing him, that I may be found in Christ. And he explains it the rest of verse 9. Not having, to be clear, a righteousness of my own derived from the law, derived from keeping rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes, underline it, from God. Not from me, not from my deeds. It comes from God on the basis of my faith and only my faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul delights his joy, his confidence, his hope is in one thing and one thing only Christ. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul knows his future is secure, not because of his deeds, but because of his relationship. He is in Christ. Verse 12, he transitions here. He's going to move from arguing against legalism to arguing against being a liberal, being a libertine, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, and still thinking that uh, you're good to go because you got a ticket in your spirit and you can do whatever you want in your flesh. Now, he's got to balance this because he's speaking against those who said you got to you got to follow all the rules. Paul says, no, I'm just in him. I put my confidence in him, nothing in nothing in that I do. And he's going to move here from his salvation into the process of his sanctification. He's going to take us from his past now into his present. And he's going to tell us how now shall I live? Okay, look at this. Verse 12. Now, not that I've already attained to it. To what? To the resurrection, to the goal for his life, being glorified, sanctified in Christ. He knows he's not there yet. Okay? Paul understands that. He's not glorified yet. Not that I haven't already obtained to it or have already become perfect. Positionally, Paul knows he's perfect. But in his flesh, while he's still here on earth, he knows he's not. Now look at what he says here. But I press on, and he's going to go from accounting language to uh, essentially athletic language. He's going to give you a picture of a race right here. And he sees his life, he views his life from here on out, from salvation to his death as a race. Look at the picture. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ. What was I laid hold of by Christ for? For my salvation, for my glorification. So that I might have fellowship with God and enjoy him forever. He said, I'm pressing towards that. I'm not keeping a list, but let me tell you what I am doing. Although I'm not perfect yet, the rest of my life, I'm going to strive towards that which God has saved me for. Holiness. That I might be holy as he is holy. I'm not there yet. And Paul would even say, I'm not going to reach that goal in this life. But he sees that crown out there. In Paul's day, when they would run races, they would put, they would put the reward, they would put the, uh, the crown, if that was the reward, they would put it at the end of the race. 
so that all the runners could see what they were running for. And it would cause them to run with all they had. Paul says, I see that goal. I see that thing for which Christ laid hold of me. And I'm going to spend my life leaning in, leaning forward, pressing towards that mark, that goal for which Christ called me. You see, I'm not going to live however I want to live. I'm not going to be complacent. I'm not going to say that I can do whatever I want with my physical body. He's going to strive for that which God has saved him to. And that is his holiness. Watch this. Verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. But one thing I do. One thing. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Very often quoted verse. I think it's quoted wrongly. Most of the time we think about this verse, that he's forgetting what's behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. We think that he is forgetting about his sins. And he's pressing on towards uh, what God has for him. That is true, but it's not true here. In context here, what he's referring to, that he is forgetting what is behind, he's forgetting all the things that that have glorified him, humanly speaking. Everything that he's done, that he counted in the gain column, that he now understands as a loss, He says, I'm forgetting about all those things that I thought were positives. Anything that I might do for God, anything positive that I might do for him, you know what? I'm not going to live my life glorying in those things. He said, I'm going to forget even about those things. And I'm going to press towards this goal, this goal that is my sanctification, my glorification. This process here that Paul's referring to, we call it the sanctification of the believer. That he knows he's not what he is going to be, but he sees at the end of the track what he is going to be, that for which Christ laid hold of him for, and he's going to spend his life striving for it. Can I live my life however I want now that I'm in Christ? No, I can't. Because I see why he saved me, I see what he saved me to, and I'm going to press on towards that goal. Paul says, I'm going to forget everything that's behind me, good, bad, and ugly, and I'm going to press towards that mark. No matter what I've accomplished to this point, I'm going to keep going. 14. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, that word perfect there has the idea of being mature. As many of us who are mature have this attitude in us. Similar language to chapter 2, have this attitude, which was in Christ. Paul says, have this attitude, this attitude of striving towards your sanctification. And if anything you have a different attitude in, God will reveal it to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. What standard to which we have attained? We've attained to Christ. The righteousness imputed to us by Christ, he says, let us see that as the goal ahead. Let us see that as our future and let's press towards that. He says, I'm not going to be a legalist. And I'm not going to live my life however I want. Paul finds this this tremendous balance between the two. That my list is not going to impress God to the point where I become a child of God. Where do I land? He says, I land in him. I put my confidence not in anything that I do. I put my confidence in knowing him, the person of Jesus. And now how am I going to live my life? That's my past, my salvation The the hope of my salvation is where? It's in Christ. Where is the hope of my sanctification, his present? It's in Christ. I strive towards 
Christ who laid hold of me. Incidentally, the motivation for all that Paul does in his living now is based upon what God has done for him, not based upon his own efforts. More on that later. Verse 17, he's going to make a, he's going to make a turn in his letter here towards the Philippians. And he's going to say to them that this should be your desire as well. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Don't follow these guys who would say you need to have this list. Don't follow these guys who say now that you are uh, supposedly in Christ, you can do whatever you want. You have to know that you are in Christ and your heart that worships God in spirit and in truth will cause you to long to want to press towards the mark. All right, there's a lot more unpacking to do in that, I understand. And we're going to deal with this as we come back and put some of the meat on these bones. Let me show you a couple more verses, and then I want to tell you why this passage, I think, is here. Go to verse 19, excuse me, verse 20. We've seen Paul's past, we've seen Paul's present. Let me show you where he sees his future. His past, his salvation, is in Christ. His present, his sanctification, is in Christ. His future, his glorification, he's going to also say, is in in Christ. Where is Paul's hope? Where is Paul's confidence? Where is Paul's delight? Where is he rejoicing? Where is his joy? It is all in Christ. Past, present, and future. Look at this, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for who? A person, a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will, by the way, transform the body of our humble estate, or literally our vile state, into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You see what he's done? He's taken us through his whole life. Past, Christ. Present, Christ. Future, Christ. Paul's hope, meaning his confidence, his delight, he puts all his eggs in the basket that is Christ. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Find your hope in God. Why is this passage here? Let me give you a few options. Number one, it could be that it's simply here to teach us about legality. Teach us that we can't be saved by works. That's certainly here, right? I mean, it's a great passage. Paul's testimony here, if you will, his resume that tells us, here's all the things that I've done. I'm top notch on list keeping. And he says it wasn't enough. I found out that what I thought was in the profit column is really in the loss column. It could be just to teach us about salvation, that we, that we can't, keep, can't keep the rules. It could be that. I think it's partially that. It could be, number two, that he's written this chapter to combat the opponents, to combat both sides of the street, to combat both ditches, that we fall not in either one. It could be that he wrote this so that those who are on the peripheral there trying to drag these these Philippian believers into one ditch or the other. It could be that he wrote this to combat both the legalists and the libertarians. I think that's part of it. I think there's an underlying theme that will help us to tie all this book together, however. I think the underlying theme that we've seen throughout is that Paul is hoping to address The issue that he has alluded to, and in chapter 4 he's going to make very clear, that there's an issue of unity among the church. He's saying, how does this speak to the unity of the church? 
I think, I think here's what he's doing. How do you, how do you get a church to unite? Uh, I think what Paul employs here is theology. He teaches them the doctrine of salvation, essentially. How do you bring about unity in the church? You teach them about the truth of their salvation. What do you mean? You teach them that they are in Christ by no action of their own, by no deeds of the flesh. You've done nothing to elevate yourself to a position where God has paid attention to you to the point where he has now brought you into the fold. The work of your salvation is the sole work of a sovereign God. It is attributed to us by faith alone. Let me read to you Titus chapter 3. A couple months ago we went through Titus. You'll remember this passage. It's in the context of not being grumblers in the community. Not being uh, troublemakers in the community. Listen to it. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Not to malign anyone, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, how are you going to achieve that unity? How are you going to achieve that, that peacefulness in the church and among your community? You teach them theology. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, incarnation, you see the past before Christ, you see the incarnation, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for all men, lost and saved. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, strife, disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after the first and second warning. Do you see what he does? He builds this argument for for unity on theology. I think that chapter 3 is here uh, at least to a great extent, because Paul knows that if he's going to bring about unity in the church and he's going to direct it, he's going to address it directly in chapter four. He's got to teach these people that there is nothing about themselves that in their own mind should elevate them. Paul says, I've got the list. I've got the list. And you know what I realize? It's worthless. It's worthless. You know what my hope is? Past, present, and future. My hope is just in Christ. That's it. It's in Him. And it's in a relationship to Him. You want to know why I strive? You want to to know why I reach for that high calling to which He laid hold of me? It's Christ. When Paul understood what God had done for him, he says, I'll give everything. Chapter 1, Christ is my life. Chapter 2, He's my example. In humility to the point where I'll give up everything that I've had and I'll lower myself to the point where I will take the gospel to whoever, wherever, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. I'm here for you, you, you. Chapter 3, there's nothing about me that impressed God to the degree that he, he saved me. 
As we sang earlier, what can separate me from his love? The emphasis is that he loved us. Paul gets that. He gets that it's nothing he did. Because he gets that, the rest of his life, he's going to strive towards that mark, knowing that he's never going to make it in this flesh, in this life. He's going to ambitiously reach towards the righteousness that he has attained in Christ. As we do that, and as we understand that that's what's happened, that's what's happening, and that's what's going to happen, and it's all because of Christ, we look around and we put ourselves above no one else. We put ourselves above no one else. Let's pray.